Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Kling Behind the Scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Jim Inglis. Jim is the author of the book Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture can change everything. He's also the president of English Retailing. The book not only chronicles the history of Home Depot, but also he goes through some of the principles that we can learn from Home Depot and others in terms of high productivity retailing. Jim, of course, previously worked with the Home Depot in their C-suite for 13 years during their period of expansion in the 80s and 90s. We'll also talk about Walmart's last mile platform, Go Local, getting their first major customer. And we will look ahead to a third party partnership that Target is entering into in the buy now, pay later space. Well, a reminder that you can like us and rate us however you access us, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other listening service. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. I'm going to apologize. This week's episode will be a little bit shorter. You could probably tell my voice is on the way out. And every time I try to record a full-length episode with little or no voice, I always get emails and messages saying, hey, don't do that. You sound terrible. So we'll keep it short here. Fortunately, the interview with Jim recorded when I still had a voice. Well, as we mentioned, a short news segment, but let's get right to it. Just six weeks after launching their in-house last mile service, Walmart has their first customer. And it's a big name retailer. We mentioned on the show a few months ago that Walmart was planning their rollout of Go Local, which is basically a last mile delivery service of their own. This platform, kind of like Target's treatment of shipped, allows for other retailers to adopt the platform and the technology, meaning it isn't just an in-house service for Walmart. And they're rolling it out to a select few markets with the idea that it will expand as they're able to scale up. And Home Depot is the major retailer that's announced their partnership with this Go Local platform. This came last Wednesday. Currently, Go Local has, as I mentioned, only been released in a few select markets. So Home Depot going to piggyback in these particular markets only pertain to those markets for now but as the platform scales up to more markets the plan currently is that home depot's partnership will scale up along with it we should note too that the last mile delivery program only pertains to items that could reasonably fit in a typical passenger car so you're not going to have the go local drivers hauling around lumber or appliances or anything like that that'll still be fulfilled or you'll have the option to fulfill it through Home Depot's current providers or in-house services. So the Go Local fulfillment option, when you go through the checkout at Home Depot, it'll only appear for customers if you have eligible products in your cart. So if you have something like smaller power tools or other tools, fasteners, paint, and so forth, this option will appear if you're in one of these markets. And I think this signals kind of more of an emphasis from Home Depot, which we'll talk about, of course, more in the interview segment on their last mile delivery plans. They would like to be able to deliver orders on a same or next day basis via local stores to 90% of the U.S. population. And the emphasis here continues to be 
on fulfilling through the local stores rather than through distribution centers or fulfillment centers. So this certainly goes a long way towards that in addition to Home Depot's other partnerships. Now, one of the interesting things I thought, at least from this release, is that Go Local, when Walmart was discussing this, offered a number of back-end technologies as far as their own logistics platforms, but it's unclear as to how or to what extent Home Depot will leverage these or if they're strictly just leveraging the transportation and delivery aspects. Certainly from the releases that we have so far, it seems like Home Depot is simply just leveraging the transportation and delivery aspects. But I think this is important because you have a number of these last mile services, these services that are third-party services that can be used in a number of markets. And it'll be interesting to see if kind of Walmart's brand name among other retailers and their trustworthiness among other retailers will drive more partnerships beyond just this Home Depot partnership. So again, Home Depot seeking to expand some of their last mile services. And it certainly seems like a rather low risk bet here and a big get for Walmart and Go Local that their first customer is such a big name retailer in Home Depot. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Home Depot. As I mentioned, our guest Jim Inglis wrote a book, not only chronicling the growth of Home Depot, but also some of the principles that we can glean from Home Depot's growth. So we'll talk a little bit about the history of Home Depot, why they succeeded versus other home improvement chains that were either you know smaller or about the same size in square footage during the 1980s, and what Jim is most proud of from his retail career. We always hear from listeners that they love to hear about retail history. The progression of well-known brands and their success or failure teaches us a great deal as far as the science and approach to retail is concerned. And there are always lessons to glean from a retailer's progression. When we talk about more meteoric rises in retail, Home Depot has to be in the conversation. We're pleased to be joined by Jim Inglis, author of the book Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything also the president of Inglis Retailing. The book not only chronicles the history of Home Depot in the first half, but also notes 10 principles that we can learn from Home Depot and others that drive high productivity retailing. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Trent. I'm happy to be here. Now, I gave a a brief introduction about you, but since we'll be talking a bit about your experience throughout the interview, I was wondering if you could give our listeners maybe a brief overview of your retail career to this point and some of the experience you bring as you were writing this book. Well, I have spent 60 years working in the retail business and specifically in the home improvement business, starting out and getting out of high school and starting to work in a, in a home center and working my way through the university to my BA and MBA simultaneously working in the retail store. And by the time I completed my education, I found that I really liked being in retail and wanted to continue to focus on the retail business. So I worked for uh, traditional home centers that uh, existed prior to the Home Depot start and also worked for traditional building supply company that supplied to the builder market. But in 1980 was the first full year of Home Depot's business. And In 1983, I joined the company. At that time, uh, Home Depot had eight stores, and I spent the next 13 years with Home Depot, 
when we first started, we had many, many hats and did different jobs. But basically, I was initially responsible for about half of the merchandising departments. In 1985, we decided to expand from our southern base, Southeast United States base, to the West Coast. So I moved back to the West Coast and helped open the West Coast stores where I was vice president of merchandising. In 1990, we opened the Northeast division. So now we had three divisions, a Southern division, a West Coast division, and a Northeast division. There was a need for some coordination. So I came back to Atlanta as executive vice president of merchandising and fulfilled that position for the next five years. In addition to being on the corporate board of directors and responsible for strategic development. At Depot, I was responsible for the merchandise department, the marketing department, and the logistics department during that time. I left Home Depot in 96 and began working with other home centers around the world in 1998. And so I served on the board of one of the first Chinese home centers. And I've been an advisor to the board of leading home centers in Australia, Japan, South America, and Europe. And I've really done that for the last 20 years. And essentially my book, the first half of the book chronicles the, the history of Home Depot, but the second half is the principles of retailing that I have found have been very helpful in training these international retailers and in how to essentially emulate the Home Depot in their own markets and become the leading big box warehouse home center in each of their markets. Now, something that's kind of addressed in the book, but also something you address to a certain extent in talking about your retail career is the fact that Home Depot, along with a few others, really revolutionized what it meant to have a home improvement or building supply retailer in the U.S. There are a lot of our listeners that probably don't know much outside of the current Home Depot and Lowe's-based landscape that's out there today, but it was very different in all likelihood when you broke in. I remember you know, you'd pay less cashways, Builder Square was starting in 1983. In what ways did Home Depot really revolutionize the home improvement and building materials retail space? Prior to 1980, in the United States, there were 32 regional home centers, and you mentioned a few of them, but there's quite a list. Home Depot essentially was a disruptor. Just like you think of Amazon today as a disruptor today, well, in 1980, Home Depot was a disruptor because basically all of these home centers purchased through two-step distribution had relatively small stores based on more of a convenience format for the DIY customer. What Home Depot did was say, you know, we're going to open big stores and the stores we opened were twice as big as the market model. And because of that, we will be able to purchase in truckload quantities. We will be able to buy direct. We will be able to eliminate wholesale distribution. And so that was the disruption. The disruption was that, that the whole supply chain for the home improvement industry changed because of Home Depot. And over the next 20 years, as Home Depot entered each of those markets where those 32 retailers were, each one of those retailers ultimately went out of business. Some of those retailers also tried to open big stores. Builder Square was a good example. It started in San Antonio, opened some stores, sold to Kmart. And with Kmart's money, they for a while had even more stores than Home Depot had, but they didn't have the culture that Home Depot had. You can build a big store, you can fill it with merchandise, you can even price it the same as Depot, but that doesn't mean you know the secret sauce. You don't know the elixir that makes it work. And so today the market consists of three 
big box home centers, Home Depot, Lowe's, and Menards, which is in the Midwest. But even today, by any numbers in terms of total volume, in terms of return on equity, in terms of you know sales per square meter, whatever the measurement is for the productivity, Home Depot is today still by far the dominant market leader. And you mentioned during your span at the Home Depot, obviously expansion was a key. And it seemed like expansion was regular in some circumstances. I remember hearing numbers where it's like Home Depot opens a store every week, every couple of weeks, that type of thing. While you were there, what type of growth did you experience when you were at the company? What developments did you see that made that growth sustainable, unlike the likes of Builder Square or other forms of retail, Blockbuster, Far More, that type of thing? Yeah, well, when we opened our stores in Atlanta, about 1984, I guess it was, we branched out and purchased a company called Bowwater. And during that year, we found ourselves in a situation where we thought we may have bit off more than we could chew. And so at that time, the company decided that they would put a speed monitor in place that we would grow our business by 25% a year. And we knew that by doing that, by the year 2000, we would have a thousand stores in the United States. And of course, when you grow at 25% a year, that compounds, that compounds annually. And so, you know, by the time I left the company, which was in 96, we were in fact opening over a hundred stores a year. So yes, it was on the average about two stores a week. I wish they were that evenly spaced. They weren't. But the way we did that is we had four distinct divisions of the company geographical divisions. And so each division was responsible in effect to open 25 stores. And so that's how we managed that kind of rapid growth. But again, the speed limit was 25% per year because that's what we felt we needed in order to develop the systems, to develop the staff, to develop the training, develop the people, develop the supply chain that we couldn't get out in front of our skis. And as a result, that 25% guideline was the basic operating rule. You've talked about some ways in which you got new stores prepared to open and kind of divvied up the responsibility for that throughout the course of the company. I'm curious what kind of checks were in place to ensure that these new stores, once they got off the ground after one year, two years, et cetera, remained successful where it seemed like a lot of other retailers just kind of abandoned the new stores to look at the other new stores that they were opening. Well, you know, probably the good comparison was the company you mentioned, which was Builder Square. You know, Builder Square went into every market as fast as they could. So they wanted to get into the markets before Home Depot was there. And so they would open stores, one store in a market, and then jump to the next market and jump to the next market. In our case, we were always focused on, yes, we would open a new market, but then we would also backfill into our existing market so that we could grow our dominance within that market. And the result was that we had a much stronger front of mind awareness with our customer. We had a much better trained sales force. We had a much better culture in our company and we had a better supply chain because our growth geographically wasn't as fast as Builder Square. But when we went into a market, we were prepared to be the dominant player in that market. And of course, the result was that ultimately we did get across the country. It took us, basically, it took us 20 years to go from coast to coast and border to border. But by pacing ourselves, you know, we were able to do it right and maintain that right relationship with our customers. 
Now, you've mentioned it already during this interview, but also throughout the book, a thread runs, and not only in the first half, but it also comes up as you talk about the 10 principles as well. It's that culture at Home Depot. To someone who has never worked at Home Depot, how would you best describe this culture that pervades through the entire business from the top down? Well, the culture really starts with a servant leadership. And the servant leadership is going to set certain values. They're going to demonstrate certain behavior. And that behavior, when it's consistent, helps develop that culture. And the culture defines a mission. And that mission becomes something that the staff can grasp onto, that the associates can take ownership for. And that mission at Home Depot was customer service, but delighting the customer. And as a result, the company decentralized its structure so that there was responsibility, there was delegation, and there was ownership at the local level to always put that customer first and to be able to make decisions at the local level. And in order to do that, you have to not just train your staff in terms of how to do the job, but you have to educate them as to the why of the job. And once they understand the why, then you can have confidence to give them that authority to make those local decisions, to do whatever it takes to maintain the right relationship with your customer. The mantra has to be, we will give the customer no reason to ever shop elsewhere. And you have to establish that mantra and then give the authority to the associates to accept ownership for that customer-centric policy. And of course, as you mentioned, a big part of building culture doesn't only come from management initiatives, but also being sound in hiring practices and principles, in addition to the training that you just mentioned. This is something that retailers seem to have only caught on to recently across the board in 2021. But in what ways, looking back, do you feel like Home Depot was ahead of the curve in terms of those hiring practices and principles? And in what way does this translate to some of your work with international retailers now? Well, our simple philosophy was hire the right people, train the right people, and keep the right people. And of course, the key is that last piece is keep the right people. Too many times in the retail business, the position is thought of as a beginning point for a career that's going to go on to something else, or it's a temporary position. And it's very important that you have a career path for your people and you give them both financial incentive, but also emotional incentives to say, I want to have a career. I want to stay because if the people stay now, you can make the investment in the training. You can make the investment in the education. You can pour yourself into these people because you know they're going to be there. And so people work for money and you certainly should pay not only at the market, but above the market. We certainly never wanted to have minimum wage people work for us. We wanted to pay for expertise. We wanted to pay for a person who had the ability to learn, to grow. But in addition, and probably more important, is the emotional culture of saying, you know, people want to be part of something big. They want to be part of something good. They want to be something bigger than themselves. And so, you need to celebrate the successes of, for instance, taking care of your customers. And as you celebrate those successes, you turn them into stories. And one of the jobs of management is to tell the stories and to repeat the stories 
so that the stories become the fabric of the culture so that people understand that this job is not just a job until I find a better job, but rather this is a place where I can make a career and I will be rewarded financially, but also I will feel good about myself. Now, hiring and retaining the correct people for the job is one of your 10 principles in the book. Another one of your 10 principles in the book, and it's principle four, in fact, I found this really salient given what we're seeing now in 2021 in the retail landscape. The principle is success is measured by gross margin return on inventory investment. At the same time, you note that focusing solely on increasing gross margin percentage can be a recipe for failure. And of course, we hear so much about Inflation, costs from supply chain issues, what are lessons others can take from not only Home Depot's approach here, but also your overall experience with other retailers as well? Most retailers, when they price their merchandise, use a formula that's really based on the history of how that product was sold in their company. And so there's a gross margin percentage. And once they know their cost, they then go to the calculator and calculate their new retail. Well, the problem with that is that it completely ignores customer demand. It completely ignores any change in the marketplace, whether it's a supply side thing or a demand side thing or a competitive thing. And so you're never going to maximize the gross profit dollars of your company if you're using a formula based on a past experience. In addition to that, in virtually every retailer, there's the pressure from the financial group to increase that number. If light bulbs were sold at 36% last year. Well, why can't you get 36% this year? Why can't we get 36 and a half? Well, if you take that logic to its logical conclusion, you will kill your business. You'll just keep raising your margin and you'll make the finance group very, very happy that you increase the gross margin percentage. But meanwhile, your sales fall. And as your sales fall, your gross margin dollars fall. And as a result, you actually destroy the company. On the other hand, if you focus on How do we grow our gross profit dollars? We grow our gross profit dollars by sales. And therefore, if we have products that are price sensitive, you know, we actually can increase our gross profit dollars by driving down our gross margin, by driving down prices and creating sufficient sales to increase gross profit dollars. And so how do we do that? Well, we have to do that by understanding the customer and realizing that the right price is not the price on our computer. The right price is the price in the customer's head. And so we have to identify what is that right price that'll make the customer buy today and establish in their mind that our brand is the right place to buy next time they need product. And so by focusing on gross profit dollars, you are forced to focus not on your cost, but you're forced to focus on the customer's mind, the customer's demand, the customer's opinion. And if you do that, if you do that properly, your GMROI, your gross margin return on investment will go up. It's a direct relationship of responding properly to your customer. I would say most retailers do not understand that. And most retailers continue to price their goods with a calculator and they'll never maximize their gross profit dollars doing it. As we wrap it up here, something I I like to ask everyone that we have on the show that's had an illustrious retail career such as yours, as you look back at your 60 years, as you say, in retail, what is it that you're maybe most proud of accomplishing during the course of your career? Well, I guess, you know, 
I would say that at the end of my career here, I decided to put all of these thoughts into my book. And we published the book two weeks ago. And the thing that I'm probably the most proud of is how many of the many, many people that I have encountered in South America and in Europe and Japan are purchasing the book, are then sending me notes, thanking me for the book and commenting on the book. And so I think the thing that I'm the most proud of is that I've had an impact on middle management and young people all around the world in terms of how they approach their retail business, always focused on a customer-centric view of how do we delight the customer. So, you know, that is probably what I'm most proud of and didn't realize it until just two weeks ago when I published my book. Well, that's a great realization to have. Nonetheless, as you get that book published a couple of weeks ago, and once again, the book is called Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. BreakthroughRetailing.com is where you can check out a little bit about the book. There's links to purchase it there on Amazon. And Jim, I, I appreciate you joining us. We just scratched the surface. Everyone's got to go out, get this book to learn more about the history. I think it's a must read for retail. But like I said, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. Thank you, Trent. I enjoyed the chat. Thank you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, once again, we thank Jim for joining us. And as we wrap up the show, before I can't talk any longer, we do want to look ahead at a story that broke this last week as Target has added two new third-party buy-now-pay-later options for their customers. It was announced that they're teaming up with two different providers, Sezzle and Affirm. Affirm, a friend of the podcast. We've had leaders at Affirm appear on the show before, so full disclosure there. But the idea being that, especially in the lead-up to the holiday season, they'll give Target shoppers a couple of different options. Sezzle, what they will do is any eligible purchase at Target will be split up into four interest-free payments over six weeks with no fees if they are paid on time. Meanwhile, a firm for purchases over $100, they'll offer a pay-at-your-own-pace platform, usually monthly payments. You'll digitally apply with a firm, and then you can shop online at Target.com. Use a firm as your method of payment. So two different platforms there, but two different ways in which they're being employed. And the reason I'm looking ahead is we're getting word from a number of researchers, including something that was cited this week in Chain Store Age from eMarketer, where a lot of people are using these buy now, pay later options, especially the ones built into retailers' platforms rather than using credit cards on their own. According to this eMarketer data, in fact, more than 45 million U.S. customers will use a buy now, pay later platform in 2021. That is up over 80% over 2020. So these type of services are gaining traction. And the reason I'm looking ahead is just how much will retailers begin to put stock in these external programs? Of course, layaway has been a thing forever pretty much in retail, but you're seeing these third-party platforms that are able to do it with a little bit more agility 
able to focus 100% of their resources on these buy now, pay later platforms. Walmart has already partnered with Affirm. Of course, Amazon has been testing the Affirm platform. So you're seeing larger retailers do it, but how much does this catch on on some of those mid-sized retailers? And the other thing is, how much do these platforms erode potential market share from companies like, let's say, Aaron's, for example, which has their own, by the way, payment platform. But Aaron's is a company who has, of course, punched their ticket to revenue generation based on the pay a week at a time thing, in-house financing, of course, and then offering third-party financing. So the more you see these platforms like Sezzle, like a firm, jump up, and you see these larger retailers use them, how much does that affect the ability of those like Aaron's, of those like Rent-A-Center, of those like Buddies, for example, who have been rumored to be near bankruptcy for quite some time in the U.S. South? How do those platforms remain relevant when you have these larger retailers with the benefit of scale able to reach potentially more customers with it? So I think there's a lot in this space, the buy now, pay later space, that needs to be worked out still. I think the next three to five years, if you're looking, I think we're going to see a lot to be determined in the next three to five years. And by the time five years from now rolls around, I think we're going to have some level of clarity as far as the go-forward state of buy now, pay later services as they pertain to retail. So just an interesting story there and certainly something that we'll keep an eye on and we'll keep talking to any of you guests from those particular companies about buy now, pay later, because I do think it is a huge, huge story in retail, not only in 2021, but I think you're going to see it be a story especially over the next few years. And you also wonder, you know, with all these stimulus payments coming out, with people being said to have more money in their bank accounts than ever before, they're still leveraging these buy now, pay later platforms to a greater extent than previously. Certainly got to think that this is an option that's going to linger around for some time if we do see an economic downturn, if we do see a potential emptying of those bank accounts in the future. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's episode. Big thanks to Leighton Behind the Scenes. And coming up next week, we'll be joined by Emily Gray. Emily Gray is a small business consultant and expert, small retail consultant and expert, as well as a consultant for various retail brands. She'll be joining us to discuss the upcoming Small Business Saturday and what Q4 will look like for small retailers in 2021 versus 2020. Also some things that small retailers could or should focus on going into the holiday sales season. Until then, hopefully I get my voice back at least to some extent and we'll see you about seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.